Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in partnership with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. When we think of Nepal, we think of its high Himalayan mountains, or maybe the highlands around Kathmandu. But somewhere between a quarter and a third of the country is nothing like that. Instead, it's marshy, forested, at one time malaria-infested swampland along the southern border of India. This is the Terai, the most productive region of Nepal, and also the focal point for the one-time Kingdom of Nepal's conquest. Maximilian Mork writes about the region's history in his latest book, Plains of Discontent, A Political History of Nepal's Terai, 1743-2019, published earlier this year. Maximilian Mork is an author and researcher specializing in Asian borderlands. He is also the author of By the Way of the Border. His research has focused on a wide range of issues, including political discontent, dissent, judicial reform in Myanmar, illegal status of Tibetan refugees, migrant workers in Thailand, and citizenship in Nepal. His writing has published in Himal South Asian, Huffington Post, Diplomat, and East Asia Forum. Today, Maximilian and I talk about the Terai, how it relates to Nepal's history, and how development in this region may have had some unintended consequences. So, Maximilian, thank you so much for coming on the show today to talk about the Terai. You know, reading about the Terai made me feel kind of really, really kind of awkward and um, in that I never really thought about the parts of Nepal that weren't mountains and, I guess, the hills. Um, but this is a whole region of the country that's, I think, quite different from how outsiders might stereotypically think about Nepal. Um, so where exactly is this region of Nepal and what makes it different from, as I said, the hills and mountains that make up the our images of, of Nepal from outside the country? Yeah, so effectively, we can kind of crudely split Nepal into three geographic zones. You have, of course, the Himalaya, uh, you know, home to Mount Everest and what is really synonymous with uh, Nepal as a nation. Sitting a little bit below that, you have the Mid-Hills, which is where um, Kathmandu, the, uh, the capital, is located. And then the third and final geographical zone is something, as you mentioned, it's not something we would uh, typically associate with Nepal, but it's the flat plains. And so these flat plains are kind of hemmed in on all three sides by the uh, Indian border. Um, and what makes this different from Nepal is it's flat. I think the highest point in the Terai is sort of around 80 meters above sea level. Um, but it's a very different way of life. There's a lot of the culturally differently, linguistically uh, differently, of course, geographically very different to to the rest of Nepal. Um, so let's talk about some of these cultural and linguistic differences. I mean, I mean, what what differentiates the people that live in this region from again the, the people that live in say Kathmandu and, and in the you know, the hill zones, I guess. 
Yeah, of course. So, I mean, the, the first thing to kind of point out is over the last 50, 60 years, there's been um, a lot of kind of demographic change, but also uh, in terms of domestic migration, um, people have moved from the Terai to Kathmandu, from Kathmandu down to the Terai. So a lot of these kind of um, the differences have kind of um, changed a little bit um, over the last couple of uh, generations. But traditionally, when, when we look at kind of population groups in the Terai, there'd be kind of two major groups that kind of stand out as having their differences. Uh, from populations in uh, Kathmandu, um, basically from the hill Nepalis. Um, and they'll be Madeshis and Tarus. So these are population groups in the Tarus. Uh, they are considered indigenous to, to the Terai. Um, and they're really quite interesting. And so they've lived in the Terai for so long, uh, they've actually became what's considered almost immune to, to malaria. So one of the reasons... In, in the Terai, it had these hugely thick forested, um, kind of swampy, foresty plains, but no one no one would go into them because there was such high prevalence of malaria. But for Taru communities, because they had lived there for you know hundreds, if not thousands of years, they developed a sort of immunity. So they were able to live in areas of the country where other people would just fear to dread. So they were able to develop their own uh, language, their own culture, their own uh, way of life and their relationship with the forest and with the kind of natural resources of Nepal that was very, very different from what was going on in, in Kathmandu. And also the Madeshi population, um, so they are people, again, from, from the Terai. Many of them are indigenous to Nepal. They were living in areas uh, before the kind of Nepali state encroached onto them. But also a significant number migrated uh, to Nepal around 200 years ago. Uh, they were invited to do so by local uh, landlords. But as a result of that, uh, many of them, would they look different. Uh, they uh, tend to speak maybe Bhojpuri or Maithili um, or other variants of or dialects of Hindi. Um, and so they have a very different kind of cultural outlook to many people uh, from the hills. And as a, as a result, there's been a lot of... Um, Political, uh, political debates and contestations, particularly um, from the 1960s onwards, when there was a kind of real bit of soul-searching going on in the uh, Panchayat period, which is effectively a um, absolute monarchy which ruled Nepal from 1961 to 1990, where there was a lot of... Um, King Mahendra particularly was quite involved in creating and shaping the Nepali identity, um, and that was a identity that was um, very much rooted in the hills and the Himalaya, leaving Madeshis and Tarus really deliberately excluded from not just the, the identity, um, but also from citizenship in many places. So really around this period, it's a lot of questions were kind of being asked. What does it mean to be Nepali? And what is the relationship with being Nepali in the hills? So effectively, can someone from the plains um, that connect really, there's an open border, so they connect imperceptibly with it, with uh, with North India, can they be seen and allowed to be identified as, as Nepali? So, I mean, speaking, speaking of the Nepali identity, I mean, the idea of Nepal isn't actually that old. I mean, it, it kind of grows out of the, I guess, the, the, the expansion of, of the kingdom of Nepal in the in the 18th century, I believe. Um, so let's actually talk about kind of, kind of this period of expansion. I mean, how does Nepal, I guess, quote unquote, um, expand into this region? Yeah, so effectively what happens is the kind of creation of um, modern day Nepal starts with um, Prithvi Narayan Shah, who is a king of the Gorkha kingdom. At this time, Nepal was really run by um, quite a fractured 
small series of kind of petty rajas and, and kingdoms. And over a series of decades, Prithvi Narayan Shah basically unifies or expands the uh, Gorkha state. Contemporary academics often use now, now the term colonization. Um, but effectively, he expanded east, west, south and north uh, from his very small uh, holding of Gorkha to uh, capture Kathmandu. He captured huge swathes of modern day India, including Uttarakhand, Sikkim, uh, Uttar Pradesh and Bihar, but also um, so as he was expanding in the hills, he was also expanding down to to the Tarai. And this is really important because um, under Prithvi Narayan Shah, the control of the Tarai provided huge economic gains. And actually, he used the wealth of the Tarai to kind of fund his burgeoning military. Um, originally, we look at the Tarai, we talk about its wealth in timber. Um, but effectively, during this period for Prithvi Narayan Shah, the, the wealth of the Tarai really came from land grants. So these land grants were given as a form of payment to victorious officers. This was a really useful and handy way of paying staff because it meant the coins of the Gurkha Empire could lay undisturbed. You didn't need to give out gold and silver. Uh, you could just give out new land that you had newly conquered. And this is quite important because what happened then is you see these soldiers, generals and nobles of the Gorkha elite were given this new land, but a lot of them wanted to stay in Kathmandu or wanted to stay in other areas of the hills, mainly because of the malaria in the Tarai. But they needed to work the land, they needed to pay the tax revenue. But at the time, the Tarai was relatively underpopulated, so they engaged local landlords and um, kind of labour agents, both in Nepal and uh, northern India, to attract uh to attract settlers and migrants to to work the land. And predominantly they were found from Uta, modern day Uttar Pradesh and Bihar. And in that time, particularly around the late 18th century, Bihar was having a really calamitous time. There was a couple of, there was one famine which kind of decimated all of northern, northern Bihar in 1783, another one in 1791. And then a few years later, the rice crop almost fell across the whole state. So really it's, you, you see a kind of push and pull um, factor for people from northern India into the Tarai. So really, as not just was Prithvi Narayan Shah creating them kind of modern day and unifying the modern day Nepali state, he was also, his conquest and subsequent land reform, development and migration really changed the, changed the social, economic and agricultural fabric of the Tarai and left lasting legacies that continue to impact, potentially we can say disrupt Nepali politics to this day. Um, so how does this expansion then come into contact with with British India? Uh, I mean, with, with the East India Company and then with um, and then with the Raj. Uh, how does this new, I guess, unified kingdom, I guess, have its relations with with its much larger southern neighbor? Very contentiously, <laughs> we can say. Um, so they were both both expanding. So obviously the our, the the Gurkha Empire was expanding down from uh, by this point Kathmandu, and the East India Company was rapidly expanding from its base in uh, in Bengal in Il Calcutta. And after a few years of this kind of mutual expansion, soon they had a um, a common border, and this was causing all sorts of problems. It's it's important to note at that time. Um, the uh, Nepali state, but also most of South Asia and even Southeast Asia, uh, Southeast Asia, their form of kind of uh, territorial sovereignty is very different to what we have today. It's more spheres of influence. You didn't have these fixed lines on a map. Of course, the East India Company loved fixed lines on a map. So it doesn't take too much to see um, how they would, how these kind of two schisms would, would, would collide. And inevitably, it led to war. You saw many decades of uh, land disputes, of small skirmishes, 
Um, but it wasn't until 1814 when the East India Company went to war um, with Nepal. This war lasted for two years. And by 1816, the East India Company were victorious. But it was very hardly fought. And in around 1815, you can read, go back and read letters from commanders in the East India Company. And they're definitely realizing they've bitten off potentially more than they could chew. And in fact, the Terai plays a very pivotal role in uh, the 1814-1816 Anglo-Nepal War, is that at least one battalion of the East India Company suffered more losses from malaria than they did from fighting. So really, we see the rise as kind of malarial geostrategic military tool that people fear, fear to, uh, to dread. But a- after 1816, you have the what's called the Sagauli Treaty, uh, named after a small town in northern Bihar. Um, and this effectively, this was a, a peace treaty, which um, gave peace between the East India Company and uh, Nepal. But it saw it was quite um, humiliating terms for many Nepalis. They had to give huge swathes of land back. And this is land, not just in the, a lot of land in the Western Terai. Um, so today, which is, is around uh, Nepal Gunj and extending into um, Uttar Pradesh, but also land in, in Uttarakhand and Sikkim. Um, and the Sigauli Treaty is also where we saw for the first time that um, the East India Company were allowed to, or had a, a caveat where they could employ foreign, employ Nepali soldiers in their own regiment, which is, gave birth to the modern day Gurkha Regiment. Um, so they had quite a, so after 1816, you have around four decades where the Nepalis are quite annoyed at this uh, rather humiliating territory. Um, But then in 1857, events in India really reshape Anglo-Nepal relationships. So so for the four decades, as I mentioned, from 1816 to 1857, they have quite of a robustuous and strained relationship. But then, as we know, 1857, major impacts in India, which is now now known as the first war of Indian independence, but was then known as the Indian Mutiny or the Sepoy Mutiny. And at this time... You know, when you go back and read accounts of this time, there was really for a couple of weeks and months, if not the British position, or I shouldn't, I shouldn't say British, I said the East India Company position in India was really rather precarious. And yet, Jung Bahadur Rana, who was, the, um, who was leading Nepal at that time, he had a really big decision to make. He had a not insignificant sized army. He could make a big impact on the mutineers or the East India Company. And in the end, he decided to back the East India Company. And in fact, he led a regiment to attack uh, mutineers in Lucknow. He also then passed legislation which banned mutineers from seeking sanctuary or refuge in, in Nepal. They would effectively be pushed back and given to the East India Company. Now, he did this because he knew that were the East India Company successful in suppressing the uh, the mutiny, which they were, he could expect big rewards. And he did. In So the next year, in 1858, he was given huge tracts of the uh, what's called the Naya Muluk, um, which is in the Western Terai. So he was given a lot of the land that Nepal lost four decades earlier. He was given it back. But also, we now saw the cementing of a really powerful and strong relationship between uh, the East India Company soon to be the British Raj after, after 1858, and Nepal. That had a really important impact on the Terai. As I mentioned, for um, for many, many years, the Terai was kept relatively untouched as this malarial battleground. Nepal was quite 
it has a lot of um, geopolitical and geostrategic advantages. You have the Himalaya to its north, which is obviously very difficult to transport military battalions. Um, but then in the Terai, you have this malarial swamp, which is very dangerous. But for the first time, now that you had this friendship treaty between the, between the British Raj and Nepal, no longer did you need to keep all of this timber, keep all of this uh, the Terai's, this malarial barrier. You could start to harvest it. So for the first time after Nepal doesn't have, it can no longer expand further because there's no nowhere else to go. It's surrounded by British India. It can't make money from external expansion it has to look inwards and to do that it starts to plunder the terrain um, and interestingly just to touch on that this is another link with northern india is the terrain was full of some very very high quality timber and after 1857 the uh, british india goes on a huge expansion drive for for railways i think there was 34 um miles of railway in 1854, so just three years before the mutiny, just 34 miles of railway in all of India. And then 20 years later, there was over 10,000 miles because the British Raj was uh, militarily concerned. They were laying railways everywhere. But to do this, you need a huge amount of timber, timber, which uh, Nepal was very, very happy to to sell to them. So you have a number of interesting kind of um, events and uh, themes that kind of shape not just Anglo-Nepal relationships, but they really kind of take place and really influence the later political developments of the Terai. Um, I do quick. I do want to briefly mention, um, maybe ask for a bit more detail about the hunts that the British royals kept on doing um, in this part of the world. And I guess, I mean, how how is I guess how, how were those hunts? I guess a symbol of Nepal's relationship with um, with, with the British Empire. This is an, another aspect of um, British Raj and Nepal relationships taking place and being shaped by the Terai. So at this time, particularly under the British Raj, you know, the image of um, of the British India and hunting is really kind of synonymous. Um, and of course, and so there was a lot of hunting that uh, the British Raj went on in their spare time, particularly in the Punjab and UP. But really, where some of the best hunting in South Asia was the Terai, and that's mainly because of the malaria. Because of the malaria, it's very dangerous to go hunting tigers. So you actually had these preserves of rhinos, of tigers. But again, under the Ranas, there was a closed border. So uh, you couldn't, uh, Westerners or uh, non-Nepalis or Indians couldn't just enter Nepal. You had to be invited by the Ranas. So what the Ranas did, it was really quite clever, is the Ranas had two concerns. They wanted to develop uh, their relationship with the British, but they also didn't want to, in their own words, pollute the uh, capital of Kathmandu by having uh, foreigners, non-Hindus, come there and you know come there, eat there, and, and stay there. So what they did is they kept them safely away from Kathmandu in the Terai. They would put on these incredibly lavish uh, hunts, um, and then after they'd shot, in some cases, hundreds of tigers, uh, rhinos, elephants, all this kind of stuff, they would retire to all the kind of pomp and ceremony from a Victorian hunt, all the kind of cliches and stereotypes that you can imagine. And then they would discuss politics and they would discuss um, some of their schemes and uh, manifestations. Um, it's really rather interesting. And interestingly, again, for parts of the Terai, the first time the, uh, the government had ever laid a road, installed electricity or kind of, you know, common um, uh, social goods was not for the citizens of Nepal or the um, people living in the Terai, but it was for 
Western hunters. So there's it, the the history of the uh, of the Terai, the British is quite interlinked with uh, Shikar, the uh, the hunt. So we've mentioned malaria a few times um, in our in our conversation, uh, and how it kind of acted as a as a barrier to um, a barrier to invasion, a barrier to uh, inward migration. Um, but of course, uh, a lot of effort is spent eventually to eradicate malaria uh, in this part of Nepal, which has some unintended consequences. And I wonder if you might uh, talk about what some of those unintended consequences were. Yeah, of course. I think really it's hard, if not impossible, to overstate the importance of the eradication of malaria um, in Nepal's recent history. And malaria, while it was really concentrated in the Thrai, it was prevalent in Kathmandu as well. Um, And it was by far Nepal's biggest public health concern. And in the 50s, um, when kind of DET was being uh, pioneered, um, the United States Overseas Mission and the Nepali government agencies saw malaria as this mass public health concern, but also it was something that now due to DAT and kind of te- technological advancements, they could finally do something about. So what there was in from 1954 onwards, there was this huge malarial eradication campaign that started in Kathmandu and then worked its way into the Thrai. The thing is, it's there's nothing wrong with eradicating malaria absolutely absolutely not it's you know it was killing um hundreds of people a year it was causing havoc it's something that said uh, it should have been eradicated the problem was this policy was take was developed and implemented in a vacuum there was no consideration for what this would have on Taru's. now again as I, as I mentioned a little bit earlier Taru's had it wasn't a complete immunity but they had a resilience to malaria which means they could deal with it far far better than than anyone else and in fact malaria had formed a cornerstone of their political agency for many many years so because of their natural resistance um, it meant Taru's could do things in the forests of the Thrai that other groups were not able to they could move and decamp to the edges of forests where malaria was most pervasive and few non through dare to tread, which also meant they could avoid the burdensome taxation demands of the state and live without recognition of the state's kind of tax authority. In a way, you can kind of see if you're familiar with kind of um, if you're familiar with um, ideas of uh, Zomia and kind of hill uh, hill tribes in Southeast Asia. Moving to, the, moving to the hills to avoid kind of repressive governments. That's kind of happening here in South Asia with the Terai. So really, the malarial eradication program pacified the Terai, but it soon led to Terus being minorities in their own home. For over 200 years since Prithvi Narayan Shah kind of unified Nepal, and, and, um, unified Nepal, including the Terai, into the Nepali state, there was a long, over 200 years of the government trying to uh, foster domestic migration from the hills to the Terai to expand government presence there, but also to work the land to make it more profitable. But for all of these years, it had not worked. The resettlement program down to the Terai had not worked because of malaria. And yet now malaria was gone. The resettlement program really took place at huge, huge speed. And you can look at the, the demographic shifts that by 2001, for the first time ever, according to the 2001 census, over 50% of the Nepali, of the Nepali state lived in the Terai. Um, and you can go back and look, and I, I mentioned in the book as well about the government resettlement program, which took place in the, from the 50s, 60s and 70s, which saw 
um, huge amounts of land being reallocated to new arrivals from the hills in the terrain. This land was given on very generous terms, often 10 years tax-free. Sometimes people were given a free, uh, some free cattle or a bullock or some cash in advance to try and develop the terrain. But what this did is this also marginalized indigenous communities in the Tarai. Many of them lost their land. Um, and it, it really changed the demographics of the Tarai from somewhere which was predominantly Medeshis, Tarus, and other indigenous communities to one with a huge amount of um, Hill Nepali presence for the first time. This wasn't just to economically develop the Tarai. This was also to um, pacify, to weaken um, some of the anti or not to some of the non-hill Nepali identity um, that was uh, prevalent in, in the tribe at that time. There was another kind of part where you talk about kind of some of the unintended consequences of, um, let's say, kind of well-meaning initiatives, um, which is, uh, I guess, the conservation efforts uh of the forests of the Tarai. Um, yeah, which, which, which I'll talk about also does have kind of some unintended consequences on the people living there. Um, again, could you kind of get into some more detail about how um, the conservation efforts ended up not really, well, potentially not working for this part of Nepal? Yeah, of course. In yeah, environmental conservation, uh, particularly in the Tarai, it's not a new thing to, to Nepal. The Rana's, um, were a, a big fan of environmental protection, but not from this holistic view of the environment. It was more because they wanted to uh, protect tigers so they could uh, hunt them more effectively. But um, in the the move to establish national parks, which uh, took place under the uh, Panchayat period, we're getting from 1961 to 1990, it saw local, ter- predominantly Taru and other minority communities living in the tribe kicked off their land to establish these national parks, which would then, um, the idea was, you know, preserve and just, uh, preserve the environment and preserve the forests of the tribe. And this is not a, it, it was necessary at that time because due to uh, this huge migration to the tribe in the, for the 50s onwards, deforestation uh, was, expand, was increasing, the forests were being uh, decimated. But the important thing is here, they were not decimated by Taru communities who had been living sustainably in these forests for generations, who for them, the forests were not a, you know, envir- a resource bank they could withdraw from, but it played really pivotal parts in their cultural, uh, social and religious life as well. So what happened is they were forcibly displaced um, and then effectively a barrier was erected around the national park. So the Tarus were no longer allowed to stay overnight in national parks. The government said no one's allowed to stay in national parks because this is going to uh, you know, damage the environment. Except you could stay overnight in a national park if you could afford the several hundreds of dollars to stay in a luxury safari lodge. So really, and then there's a lot of studies that have been done in this afterwards, um, is the displacement of indigenous communities for the creation of national parks led to long-lasting socioeconomic um complications and problems for these displaced communities because the paltry amount in compensation they were given did not nearly compensate for the loss of their you know ancestral homes but also i find it really it's quite galling that um you you know if you can imagine if you can place yourself in their shoes you've been living sustainably in this forest for hundreds of hundreds if not thousands of years and then the very same government who's been plundering 
uh, the forest of the Terai kicks you out because they say they, they know better, they know how to look after it. And then right to this day, the uh, national parks are monitored by the Nepal army. Um, and so you're, you're kept away um, by force from your ancestral home to protect the environment you are already protecting. And I think the other important thing here is there's been a, a number of really interesting bits of research by human rights organizations and journalists documenting um, the human rights violations, the extrajudicial ki- killing and disappearances of minority communities trying to access the forces, um, the forests of the Terai. And yet, as I said, many of them are arrested. Some of them have been tortured. Some of them have been tortured to death. Others have been murdered by state security forces. So on the one hand, the government is saying they're doing this because they're taking a very strong uh, approach to wildlife conservation. And in fact, the number of you know tigers um, in Chitwan and Bali National Park have gone up in recent years, but it's really been expense of the local population. So while the um, indigenous communities can be shot, terrorized by state forces to protect uh, the environment, the same government is instrumental in clearing swathes of the forest for new roads, for new airports. So it's really quite um, disingenuous uh, for the Nepali government to say everything they do is with environmental conservation in mind and that um, the suffering and the displacement of indigenous communities is done so with environment environmental protection in mind given there are the policies um, which have really a disastrous effect on the last remaining areas of forest in the Terai. So I, I want to shift now to talk about um, to talk about the politics. Uh, I mean, Nepal Nepal eventually becomes a democracy, um, which then leads to questions about how to ensure adequate representation for the groups in, in the Terai, how to make sure they're not... Um, I guess, uh, how they're not just kind of, uh, under the whims of the majority. Um, but then, but then how, how do these, how do these questions about the Terai and the politics within it, how do they change when Nepal, uh, becomes a democracy, which I know is not a clean process. There was a lot of, there was a lot of, uh, fighting involved. Yeah. Um, so what I'll try and do is condense several decades of kind of political um, developments um, into a couple of sentences. So this is relatively quite broad strokes. But so Nepal became a democracy after the People's Movement of 1990. Um, but there was a lot of issues and political fighting and stagnations. There were a lot of governments collapsing. It was a bit of a roller coaster or revolving doors. Um and then in 1996, the Maoists launched a 10-year insurgency against the government. Uh, they were fighting for uh, rights of individuals. They were fighting against caste prejudice. They were fighting against the monarchy. They were fighting against authoritarianism. They had a whole list of their 40 demands they were, they were fighting for. And in, in 2006, again, I'm not going to digress and talk about the war, but um, in 2006, the, it was a comprehensive uh, peace agreement, um, which saw an interim constitution, uh, come through. But then a year after, in 2007, what we call the Medeshi movement, and uh, Medeshi is a kind of political term for, for the Terai. Um, if, we, if we talk about the Terai being a geographical term, the Medeshi is a, is a political term. Um, and so the Medeshi movement exploded. This sort of Teru's and Medeshi's campaigning um, after the post-war interim constitution ignored their demands for federalism. So really from 2007, we see the explosion of political activism um, and protests in the Terai. Not to say there hadn't been protests in the seven decades um, 
after the rounders beforehand, but not on this scale. And these, you know, movements were tens of thousands of people on the streets um, around, this was all to do with the kind of minutia of politics around federalism um, in the uh, new constitution. Um, a, small, a temporary agreement was made, but in 2008, there was a, another Medeshi movement, um, again, around inter, interim constitution. So from 2008 until 2015, you have these years of political infighting, backstabbing, horse trading, as the um, two different, there was a constituent assembly set up to draft Nepal's um, permanent constitution. And they both failed due to, again, kind of political gridlocks. And these major debates are around um, federalism and what type of federalism would Nepal have? Would it be ethno, um, would it be ethnicity based? Would it be um, kind of, and then discussions around proportional representation, what kind of federal state it would be? And these events were at a gridlock and they really, there didn't appear to be any impetus that would change that. But then on 25th of April 2000 and, um, 2015, Nepal was struck by, I think, going off memory here, but I didn't want to say 7.8 Richter earthquake, which really devastated um, much of the country. I think over 10,000 people died. Um, many, many, many more were injured and Nepal really struggled to, to respond to that, partly because of its fractured political leadership. So, there was um, major political parties agreed after um, the, the earthquake to fast track the promulgation in a kind of a spirit of unity. And, and they did. So in September, this fast track constitution was promulgated. However, this, contained, um, this continued to contain discriminatory citizenship requirements, which meant women could not pass on Nepali citizenship to their sons. Only a man could pass on citizenship um, to uh, his uh, his, his, his children. Um, and this disproportionately affected Nadeshis, many of them who have cross-border relationships due to the open border. It's very common for uh, Nepali and Indian men and women to, uh, to marry interchangeably, regardless of uh, what side of the border they live upon. And there were also huge protests around federal boundaries. The whole point of federalism was to give voices to minorities and let people kind of rule their own region. But initially, some of the proposed federal boundaries had um, many hill, many districts in the hills combined with just one or two districts in the Terai. So many in the Terai were very angry. You know, they said, well, we've been fighting, we've been campaigning for federalism because we want a more equitable state. We want to have our own voice and we don't want to just kind of hear the demands of, um, of Hill Nepal. And now we have our federal state and yet these provinces mean we're again going to be minorities. So you saw these huge protests um, which culminated in the border blockade, which went on for many, many months. Um, which is where, so if you, if you look on a map, um, Nepal, al almost all of its border, accessible border, is with India. There's, there was one border crossing with uh, China, or one mass international border crossing with China in Tatapani, and that was destroyed during the earthquake. Um, so really, Nepal was incredibly reliant on land imports from India. So during the border blockade, Medeshi groups, and also with the support of the Indian government, basically blockaded major roads and entry points into Nepal, um, which meant, uh, you know, there was huge surges, um, huge inflationary surges in the price of petrol, uh, cooking fuel, but also in the ability to get medicines in and out of the country. Um, I think one important point here to mention is during the earthquake, while uh, many parts of the Himalaya, but particularly the kind of central hill part of Nepal were devastated, the Terai was relatively um, unimpacted. So that kind of 
on the one hand, it hardened this kind of uh, Hill-Badeshi Hill divide. Um, but basically, so that border blockade went on for many, many months. And then um, it was in early 2016, it, um, the, blockade, the blockade was lifted and things went relatively back to normal. Um, and eventually, Yednapal ended up being this, um, this, this federal state. So you saw really this kind of 10 years of intense activism, um, protest in anger um, with it's important to stay here. It's not anger with Hill Nepalese, it's anger of a minority people against a majoritarian state. This is a very common conflict we see around Asia, we see around the world. Uh, but yeah, so from 2006, after the uh, Comprehensive Peace Agreement, until really 2016, you have these 10 years of bitter political, bitter political infighting. Um, many of those issues have not been fixed to this day. You know, you, you mentioned you mentioned the, the border blockade. Um, and I guess this is a good segue to my to my next question, which is kind of what role does India play in in this region, in this whole discussion? Um, I mean, obviously, they did the border blockade, um, but kind of what what role does independent India play in these conversations about about the Terai? Yeah, I think there's um, there's two points to that. One is about the role of India and the Indian government and also the, the role of the open border and how that kind of shapes uh, foreign relationships, but also um, individuals' lives and kind of political debates. So I think it's quite clear that an impartial study of Indian foreign policy to uh, Nepal, it sees itself as a uh, the kind of infamous term and Nepal would become a big brother. Uh, which can be quite condescending at times as well. Um, but I think India has often tried to play both sides apart. Um, if you go back to the uh, Maoist period, there's a lot of reports that there were, well, many of the Maoist leadership, including Prachanda and Dr. Babarang Bhattarai, were living in exile in India. Um, the So the in that period, the Indian government is both kind of talking to the to the monarchy, it's talking to the Maoists, and then during the um, Madeshi and Taru movements, they're doing the same thing. Um, they're talking to all sides, trying to, I, I guess, perhaps um, find a geopolitical advantage. Um, and I think the important thing to really focus on is the, the open border, because this is really unique um, for the rest of, of South Asia, but not even South Asia. If you just look at India, if you look at India's other borders, apart from Bhutan and reasons why that's a little bit different in Bhutan, but they're all dominated by state security forces with, um, you know, very strict and severe restrictions on movement that have massive implications on trans-border communities. Um, so the Nepal-India border is effectively, it's open. What that means is people from Nepal and India can cross. Um, they, can, they, they can cross. They don't need visas um, to, to do so. It's not, it's not a free-for-all. There are many... Uh, border checking posts and there are many uh, customs points so there is obviously uh, taxation that needs to be paid but on the whole the border is it's open there is no wall there are uh, border um, border marking posts um, which are effectively a white pillar which maybe stands as tall as your hip and that marks that marks the border so for many um, if you're away from the official border crossing points you can just stroll across the border um, which is Obviously, it's not the case between um, India and Bangladesh, certainly not India and Pakistan. So it's really quite 
it's really quite unique. And I think there's really advantages to both Nepal and India for this um, for this open border. But there are some interesting things that go on there. Again, we talk about open border, but um, privileges and socioeconomic status can have a huge impact in how people relate to and interact with the open border. For example, Nepal often closes the borders for elections. Uh, this was most recently done um, in April this year for uh, the uh, Barra district by-election. And the entire Indian-Nepal land border was shut 72 hours in November 22 for the general election. This is done under a suspicion of voter fraud or electoral manipula- uh, manipulation from India. I mean, I've yet to see any statistics statistically significant evidence of voter fraud coming from Indian uh, citizens illegally voting in Nepal, but the borders still close. So what's interesting here is these closures have little to no impact on reducing voter fraud, but they have a huge impact on the lives of individuals in the Terai. It kind of stops people from trans-border communities accessing schools, healthcare, or work. And this really, it kind of gets to the heart of what many people in Tarai, um, the heart of their grievances with, with Kathmandu and the Nepali state, they say, well, again, this is just what yet another poor policy that's resulted from a lack of understanding of border regions and the needs of local trans-border populations. And yet, during the 72-hour period, flights between Nepal and India were not cancelled. The border remained open as long as you could afford a flight ticket. And of course, many in the Tarai who are most affected by those border closures could not. Um. So I guess to kind of wrap up our conversation, I mean, obviously, you know, things keep on happening even after books are finished. Um, but kind of what's been happening, whether in the Tarai or in Nepal in general, um, since you kind of wrapped up uh, the writing of your book, um, have there been any kind of new developments in in either Tarai politics or Nepali politics since you, since you finished? Yeah, of course. Um, there's always the... Um this case, I think uh, a week after we sent the book to the printers, um, of course, there was a uh, development in the citizenship amendment bill. Um, in the book, I talk quite a lot about uh, citizenship and how the, the Nepali state has gone out of its way to deny access to, to citizenship from for many people from the Tarai um, as part of government policy. That was slightly amended, like I said, a week after the book went to, um, to the printer. Although, while now it's opened the doors for many um, people from the Tarai to gain Nepali citizenship, the reality still remains to be seen whether um, they actually will or not. But, I mean, in the, the years that have, that have passed, so the book ends in 2019, we've seen a kind of continuation of ongoing human rights violations, impunity for state forces, um, state security forces operating in the Tarai, the kind of the discontent within the Tarai, it continues um, a major point is that federalism, which brought so many out onto the streets in 2015, has failed to provide an equitable state. I mean, federalism, there's, it's still early days in Nepal, um, and it has brought around you know, quite a big government restruct- or administrative restructure. But for many, it hasn't provided the new Nepal, the, um, the fair Nepal, equitable Nepal that took them out onto the street, took them to protest that you know, people died in these protests, many more were injured. Um, so I think it's federalism's been a little bit of a, um, perhaps a disappointment, uh, maybe that's too strong a word, but it's been underwhelming, I think is probably better to say. Um, so a lot of these structural issues that continued are still there. And really we should not mistake an absence of protest for content with the status quo. Um, yeah. 
Well, I think that's a great place to end our conversation with Maximilian Mork, author of Plains of Discontent, A Political History of Nepal's Turai, 1743-2019. to um, Maximilian, I actually have two final questions for you, which are, uh, where can people find your work, not just this book, but all of your work? And what's next for you? What do you think the next project might be? Yep. So you can find the book in uh, all good bookstores in South Asia and internationally on Amazon. Uh, and you can find uh, all the, my other writings and work and research on my website, maximilianmork.com. And for other projects, it's early days yet, but I'm uh, working on a uh, working on a, a again a political history on borderlands in mainland Southeast Asia. Um, but that's <laughs> many, many years away from being in a, in, a, in a publishable state. But again, that's exploring these kind of same same themes of um, how states develop their frontiers, um, how in many places, that, for example, if we take Thailand, which I'm currently researching, Thailand was never colonized, and yet its borders were a colonial imposition. Well, of course, there's very, very similarities there with, um, with Nepal. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts, uh, including those by Maximilian Mork. Um, you can follow on Twitter at BookReviewsAsia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. We're on all of your podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, joins for a conversation with Lloyd Llewellyn Jones, author of Ancient Persia and the Book of Esther. But before then, Maximilian, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you very much for having me.